Um, I decided this summer that I would walk through some of the minor prophets, mainly because I haven't enjoyed reading them particularly, and I'm guessing that if I'm having trouble with them, that you're probably miserable with them. Um, but there's a lot of value there. It's just that it, it's an effort to try to figure them out. And so uh, I started into this book of Amos. Uh, it has not gone at all where I thought it would, where I wanted it to. Uh, I was going to race through it last week. That didn't happen. Um, I would like to finish it this week. I'm not sure that will happen. But um, there are a number of things connected with it that's, that are important enough not to just leave. And so that's, that's why I'm going to take my time. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, the last portion of that book, uh, Moses gives a, a prayer but also a prophecy of what would happen. And in the 32nd chapter, he talks about what's going to happen to Israel in days ahead. And he mentions specifically Bashan, which we covered a little bit last week, as an extremely fertile area, uh, great for agriculture, but also uh, one of the trade route paths. And so wealth went to that area. Uh, when, when Israel had its civil war sometime later, and you have the two tribal nations, so to speak, that are brothers but are separate governments. You have Judah, which is on the mountains and has Jerusalem, and, but it's a little more removed from the trade routes, and it, it, it lasts a little longer in its worship of God. In the other portion, you have more wealth accumulated. It's kind of like Abraham and Lot when they were splitting up land. Remember, Abraham took the mountains and the... Uh, and Lot took the green valleys because they looked so rich. Similarly, Israel has this wealth uh, that just kind of flows to it. And, and so Moses prophesies. He says, I brought you out. I carried you along. You grew fat and sassy, basically. You know, you, you, you got everything came to you. And uh, then you forgot me. You know, it was all going so well that you just kind of let it go. And they said, eventually you start worshiping demons even. And, and so that's a prophetic word of what lay in store for them. And that was transpiring during this time of Amos. There are several things that I look at and, and what I drew out of this book as I was going through it, in particular the first couple times, one was that uh, there's a tendency for us to associate affluence with righteousness. When things are going well and there is a natural sense of God's blessing on a person and some of the things natural of blessing is that your wealth grows. When you're not making stupid choices over and over and over again, it's, it's easier for wealth to be a part of your life. You know, when, when you uh, are refusing to spend your money on junk and just doing stupid things, it's not uncommon for wealth to start gathering around you. It is not necessarily the sign of righteousness. 
so that at times people can have a lot and still have no peace with God. And that's something that we need to always, in a sense, recognize that the two don't necessarily absolutely link up. Secondly, we can be unaware of our sin and yet not be innocent. Uh, one of the things that comes out in this book is that there are, uh, there's going to be punishment to the nations around them, but these aren't nations that worship God. And God's saying, they have lived foolishly, they have lived in wickedness, and I'm going to punish them as a result of that. Now, they have no declaration, we're serving God, so you know when they step away, it's not just for disobedience, but it's, it's a recognition that when we fail to follow God's mandates and we fail to follow his order of things, there is a, a judgment that comes on people. And so where that becomes important to us is that one of the arguments of our day is that, well, quit calling this a Christian nation. Just, you know, this is what the, the rules that the majority have made. Embrace that. If it doesn't follow what God has established for people, there is still a, a, a payback, so to speak, to come out of such things. And so you can't just live with this, well, we don't, you know, we don't, we walk in a, in a sense because we're unaware of what God really wants. Sorry, that doesn't cut it. And so when he's dealing with the nations around, there's a recognition that even though they aren't embracing God, there is a, a, a judgment on such kind of behavior. Um, thirdly, just because you do righteous acts, that does not necessarily make you holy. And so these, this group of Israel, in particular, when there was a civil war, the, the king that established this secondary group says, if we don't establish some place besides Jerusalem, they're just going to wander back and forth. This government will never last. So he sets up a couple golden calves, and, and out of that, their worship profanes over time in particular. And, and so when we look at that, you know, at one point he's going to say, you know, your solemn feasts, your festivals, your sacrifices, your music, he said, it all makes me sick. And we're kind of going, okay, we're into solemn assemblies. We're into, you know, sacrificing for God. We, we have lots of music. Is that a guarantee of holiness in our lives? And there has to be no, unless the presence of God is there, it isn't truly established. Um, let's kind of wander on. I, I'm still in review mode. Lord, help me. There is a, um, this book is written intricately. And so in the first couple chapters, there's this declaration for three things and then for four, which is a writing device we found in Proverbs. But also it just means this is important. No, this is really important kind of thing. That's, that's what this emphasis means when he says three and then four. And there's a repetition of it. He says, 
I'm not going to turn away from punishment, or this particular translation uses, but God's saying, I am not going to back off. I'm not going to turn my back is the literal idea. This is probably a really good insight in regard to parenting. When when you're dealing with your kids, you are looking at the situation. You may decide on grace in the moment, but you don't just back off. You don't just ignore and walk away. You make a decision. And so you either step in and stop the little critter from doing whatever they're doing, or you say, eh, you know, they're really tired and this isn't, you know, you, you step away and say, this counts, but I'm not doing anything right now, okay? In this particular thing, God's saying, I am not one to back off. I'm not just going to turn away from this, but I see it for what it is. And then he says, so I won't, you know, we translate it, I'm not going to revoke punishment. Then he talks of each nation, what they had done, and finally he says, I'm going to send fire, and we looked at that more later. Okay, let's go on to some of the more, the other things that I saw in particular that are important for our own theology of this day. In the uh, third chapter, he had asked these rhetorical questions, and the answer each time was no. And he gets to the seventh question, and he says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And the answer is no. That's important to me because, as I mentioned, a few years ago, when New Orleans happened, and then when shortly after that, there was a tornado in Oklahoma, Kansas, I don't remember, They're all the same, you know, Midwest. But, (laughs) no. Michigan's different. Uh, (laughs) uh, A lot of contemporary theology was saying, well, obviously God doesn't do one city and not, because they're all worthy of judgment. Or they're all, you know, and, and so people dismissed it. There was a real opportunity to say nothing happens except God is involved. But a lot of Christians chose the opposite because it was easier to defend and say, no, I don't believe a good God would do something like that. Should have been reading Amos. Because Amos makes a declaration and says, he sends rain on one city and not on another. He does things that, one, you know, not another. When Jesus was dealing with this issue, and I think Charlie mentioned it to me this week, and it's a good point. Remember in Luke when, when uh, people came to him and said, you know what Pilate did with the Galilean's blood when he mixed that with sacrifice? And Jesus says, you think they're any worse than anyone else? You need to repent or perish. And then he goes on to say, remember the Tower of Siloam fell? You know, he says, uh, you need to repent or perish. There's a Romans, when we say all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, we're all in that boat. We all could take judgment. But he says, when he does it in individual cases and over even individual cities, 
there needs to be an awareness that God's hand is involved in that some way. We would be better off to look and say, what is he wanting to say through this, and how should we receive this, rather than saying, oh no, he's not involved. That's foolishness. He's involved in everyone's life individually, so he's also involved in people, groups, and communities as well. So again, that's one of the truths that comes out of Amos that we need to look at and, and wrestle with. Is God loving? Absolutely. Is that his general tendency? Absolutely. Does he ignore justice so that love can flourish? No. And that's the, the rub and, and the tension that we wrestle with. Okay. I will repeat, when he talks to, regarding the nation of Israel, in the third chapter he made a comment that was so pictorial that I just couldn't let it go. He says when a lion, when a shepherd goes after what a lion has taken and he returns with a couple legs or an ear, you know, it's all that's left are the scraps and the guy brings it home. He's saying, in some ways, that's what's going to happen to Israel. All that's going to be left of this nation are the scraps. You know, there's, is there a little value? Well, you'll have to look hard for it, but that's all that's going to be left. And that's the description he's giving of what was going to transpire when Assyria came in and, and marched over it. But he says uh, in the next verses, in Amos chapter 5, we'll walk through... I'm starting new now. We're done reviewing. It says, Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land, with none to raise her up. This is poetry, whether we recognize it as poetry or not. And one of the things that I wanted to mention is, um, if you were to take the literal translation, you'll see kind of a double here, a parallel declaration Virgin Israel has fallen and will not rise again. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one raising her up. You and I get weary of reading these double things, right? I mean, it's, he said it once, why has he got to say it again? They say that a third to half of the New Testament is written in poetry. It's just a different style than what you and I are used to. And not always does it get translated in a way that comes across poetic. What happens is that you and I are used to reading poetry with either the rhyme or the meter, or both, right? You know, it it follows specific patterns or specific rhymes. We go, oh, yeah, that's clever. What they used to do in Israel in the writing methods is that they would make parallel declarations. And so they would make this statement, and then they kind of emphasize it again. And the idea was that it brought the fullness of emotion and depth to what was being described. So it was cleverly worded. It's just that you and I aren't used to that, and so we're going, you said it already, quit saying it again. At least that's the way I tend to go. (laughs) You know I like brevity (laughs) and bullet points. They don't write in bullet points. So anyway, this parallelism has many forms, and I'm not going to get into all of it. But uh, 
there are reasons for, for writing it that way. For one, exploring the beauty of it, it's pretty cool. You know, to be, that God gives creativity to do that. Memorization comes easier with this restatement. A lot of what was done in those days was verbal. And so for them to, to get a thing this way, it helped them establish it in their minds. And then also just the, the fact that uh, it, it did convey a depth of emotion that, that maybe wouldn't come across in just a single statement. So uh, I'm, I put a website up there that has a great article on that. And if you want to explore it, do so. Let's go on. Racing. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. He lists three places, and all of those were famous in biblical times. You know, Bethel had been a place where Jacob had met with the Lord, and yet it had become profane when Jeroboam sets up the golden calf there. Gilgal, again, was a, another place where, remember when they crossed the Jordan River and they'd pulled out the 12 stones and established this memorial place? It was the first place where they had uh, observed the Passover in the new land. It, uh, they, they circumcised everyone there. They, it was like a fresh start of the new, the new place. Uh, King Saul was anointed there. David was welcomed there. It was the crossroads. It was a, a very you know, famous place in their history, but it had become profane. And in the same way, Beersheba, you know, well of old, it was a, a place where numerous people had had encounters with God. And yet in this season, it was a place of idolatry. And he says, don't think that these places of idolatry are going to save you. Interesting to think, though, where have been the places where we associate the goodness of God and experiences with, experiences with God and do we put more value in the place than we do the actual meeting with God in the day now? And so it's, it, it has this dangerous opportunity for us to look in the past and just say, if we were to get there, that would be the great place. And those actually became stumbling blocks for, for what was to be in the next day. Anyway, just an awareness that way. I have one other thing I want to walk through in this. I've always chewed on this thing, why set up a golden calf? That seems so dumb to me. <laughs> because I didn't grow up in agriculture. And I didn't grow up in a day when oxen were, were no, useful and needed. And <laughs> they didn't have tractors, they had oxen. But what did it represent to them in their thinking? An ox is a powerful animal. And when trained properly, incredibly useful. I remember years ago watching a situation where a man was cultivating a, a rock-strewn field with oxen. And this was down in Mexico. And he would be clicking you know, with his, his mouth, telling it what to do. And he'd also be tapping it gently with a stick, just, just touching it. And it would know when to pull, when to back off so he could get it around a rock. It would know, you know, just what energy to put into things. 
by the, the, this training that was going on. But could you and I have pulled a, that plow through? No way in the world. So this strong beast was doing an incredible job for him. And it was just this gentle things. It was, you know, we call meekness power under control, and we use that example. The only trouble with this is that we'd like to control our God similarly, right? We'd like to domesticate him and submit him to, to human rule. I mean, that, that's, that's one of the things that, you know, when you've got a golden calf there, yeah, we can worship God and power. We want a powerful God. But when he's not telling us what to do and not telling us that we have to behave a certain way, that's even better, right? So that had to be attached to this golden calf thing. But, and also, you know, the, the, the fact that we want to call on God and have him help us for different tasks, beautiful thing. I also note that, that there, because of the power of this animal, there are times when, when my first congregation was a farming congregation, most of the farmers that had cattle at some point or another had gotten cornered or rolled by a bull. They'd gotten a little bit careless, and that animal that had been gentle for years caught them unaware, and uh, most of them got some crushed bones at best and uh, often injured organs, you know, it, it would kill a person. So there's a, a danger involved. And, 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 you know, with our God, yeah, there's, there's mystery. We, we like that. But, you know, with a golden calf, you can, you can have this dream of a powerful God, but one that you can call the shots. And there's a danger in that kind of worship. But that's what they had stepped into. And, and so even though they considered themselves very religious, even though they brought their sacrifices, even though they had their sacred assemblies, even though they had great music, they were looking to domesticate their God, and it didn't work. Okay, let's go on. Six and seven, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire on the house of Joseph. For you turn justice into wormwood and cast on righteousness to the earth. So he says, you've abandoned justice. And this is an important point because it comes up regularly in the book. Wormwood is something, again, that, ooh, that's a Bible mystery word, you know, <laughs> if ever I saw one. Uh, if you look it up, there's, there were five different herbs and bushes that were called wormwood, and they all had to do with bitterness. It had to do with their flavor. He says, essentially what we're to see out of this is, you've taken justice and made it bitter. And so that's, that's one of the things for us to observe when we look around. Has justice, has true justice and truth been turned into bitterness for whoever you're participating with? And, and when that happens, that's a dangerous note for us to be aware of. He says, they hate him who reproves in the gate. Remember the city elders would meet at the gate? That's kind of the, where things got settled. And he says, you, anybody that brings reproof, you kind of hate them. Why are you talking that way? 
you're bringing in negativity. You know, and he says also then, and again, this is a, one of those couplets that we were talking about. Hates reproof, hates those who declare truth. Again, that paralleling over and over again in this particular book. Because you trample on the poor and exact taxes from grain from him who have, and you have built houses hewn of stone, you shall not dwell in them. You've planted vineyards, but you shall not drink the wine. He says, you've made yourselves wealthy off the poor. It's not a good thing. You who afflict the righteous and take a bribe and turn aside from the needy. He says, such a thing, it's an evil time. So he, again, why is God going to punish this group of people? They stepped away from righteousness and started walking into evil. They've taken their wealth and said, we will build it off the backs of others. They've stepped into things that were, where they've gotten complacent and said, who cares? I mean, we worship this golden calf and he never talks to us, never tells us, don't do this. I have been on a personal level, walking through this and going, okay, when am I not listening for the voice of God? Because I don't want to hear what he has to say. What things have I been participating in and say, God, is it okay if I do this? And no answer comes quickly, must be okay. You know, I'm praying, do you want me to do this? I really don't want to, but do you want me to do this? I'm not hearing anything quick? Blow it off. How often am I walking in that kind of thing looking for a God who isn't speaking? That's the challenge that's been coming to me out of this book because it's, it's one of those things you're going, there were people here that assumed they were living under the favor of God, but it wasn't happening. Seek good and not evil. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice. Here's an incredible thing. Amos 5, 18 and 19. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. I thought the day of the Lord was a good thing. He says the day of the Lord in your case is going to be darkness, not light. What he's declaring is, he says... You are living foolishly and you're asking for the hand of God to come and destroy the nations around you so that you can have even more land and be even more prosperous. He says, you're looking at the wicked around you and assuming that because you have this heritage in God that it's all going to be blessed. And so he's saying, wake up. The day of the Lord in this case is going to be darkness, not light. And so it's an alarming call, you know, when we're going, God, show yourself mighty. And at times it may be, yeah, you're going to see mighty. It's not, it's not going to be anything you like. That's the warning that's going out in this particular book. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you want the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. He goes on and says, I despise your feasts, your solemn assemblies, your peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, so I'll not listen. So that's a pretty intense message, isn't it? 
He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In the next verses, he says, did you bring me sacrifice and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And I'm going, well, yeah, of course they did, I think. The, the, uh, you're going, well, it's Amos. We can just blow it off and go on to the next, right? Except that Stephen quotes that in Acts chapter 7. So it has some importance, but what's the importance? Commentators don't all agree on this. Some will say, well, maybe it was intermittent sacrifices while they were in the wilderness. But most likely, the idea is conveyed that, yeah, you were sacrificing to God, but you were also sacrificing to your idols. And so God just blew it off and said, I'm not accepting that. So there's a distinct possibility that they were you know, doing these sacrifices for 40 years, but because it was half-hearted and it wasn't totally devoted to him, that God just said, I'm not taking that. I can't embrace that kind of thing. And again, I'm looking at that going, oh, <laughs> this is... <laughs> This is important stuff. Because how often do we half-heartedly do something or how often we get involved in some other junk and we just kind of come back and say, oh, it's all good now, I'm back in church. I'm going to, you know, today's a good day, Sunday, here I am worshiping you. And the challenge that comes to me out of this is I don't have the right to just turn it on, turn it off, turn it on, turn it off, and expect him to be happy with it. It seems to be the declaration that he's making here. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, who feel secure. And he goes through three different woes, but it's all the same idea. Woe to those who lie in beds of ivory, stretch themselves out on their couches. You know, just... Kicking back. All life is good. Got their hammock. Just hang out. Oh, quit getting personal. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Not at all. It just seems, you know, we, we long for those days. And we love enjoying the good life. But there's the need to say, is my heart still in tune where it needs to be? And that's, what, that's the warning that's coming out in this book. He says, because of it, they're going to be the first to go into exile. He says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. The great house shall be struck down. You've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. So again, there's that bitter word. 6, 13, and 14. You're going, have we not by our own strength captured Kurnaeum? Captured Haven't we done this by ourselves? And again, he's going, no. It's God that gives you victory. 
Here's a jumping into the seventh chapter. Again, another unique and interesting development. Amos sees the Lord preparing to send locusts on the land. And he goes, please don't do this, Lord. Jacob will just be, you know, Jacob is another term for his, just be overwhelmed. And he says, the Lord relents. So it's like he's seeing what's going to come. He prays, and God backs off from that particular thing. There's a second thing that that happens. Uh, He says, the Lord, again, was going to bring a judgment of fire. And he says, oh, God, please cease. How could Jacob stand? He's so small. He says, the Lord relented. The power of prayer. And so twice there's been a, a stepping back. And he feels it important enough to include it and just say, that, that actually has impact. And then a third time, he says, he shows me a plumb line. It's in his hand. The Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And then he says, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of the people of Israel. I will never again pass by them. Again, some of these terms are things that we're not used to anymore, but a plumb line that had the same effect as a level. In fact, they're incredible to use if you're going even more than, say, the six feet that you normally would, like with a door frame or something. You want to do a couple stories? Put a weight on the end of a string and just drop it down. It'll, it'll be exact in any direction. So, you know, it... It was a, a building tool that was used, you know, with, with precision. And, and God's saying, you know, you see this plumb line? He says, that's, that's the illustration. He says, I, I, I can't just let this go anymore. I see things as they are. And so I've got to, to step in now. He says, I'm going to bring judgment on Israel. Now, At the end of this seventh chapter, we actually get some narrative. Woohoo! Can breeze through this one. (laughs) I can do this. Amaziah, who's a priest in Bethel, comes to um, Amos and says, You've got to stop this. He said, You know, Amos has gone. King Jeroboam, this would be King Jeroboam II. King Jeroboam, yeah, he's going to die. How nice to say that about the, the leader, right? Amos, you, you shouldn't be talking like that. We don't want to hear that kind of talk around here. And, and then he goes on and says, well, Amaziah, since you've treated me this way and, and you're kicking me out of here, Amaziah or, yeah, says, you got to go live in Judah. Get out of the country. You don't get to stay here any longer. And uh, Amos has one last word for Amaziah. Yeah, your wife's going to become a prostitute, and uh, your kids are all going to be killed, and your land's going to be given away. Okay, I'm leaving. <laughs> Final prophecy. Uh, but that's, it's just this powerful interaction, you know, where you're, and, and, you know, they're going... You, why, are, why are you talking like this? And he says, listen, 
I was a shepherd. I tended figs. I didn't ask to do this. I'm not the son of a prophet. He just goes, I, uh, God spoke this to me, and I have to declare it. And so he says, that's my background. That's why I do what I do. It, uh, it's not my heritage. It's, not my, it's just the way it is. So that's his declaration. Um, I'm going to go just a bit longer. Here's another amazing word picture. picture. Amos chapter 8. This is what the Lord showed me, a basket of summer fruit. He said, Amos, what do you see? basket of summer fruit, and the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I'll never pass them by again. We look at that and we're going, basket of summer fruit. What we should see out of that is uh, similar to picking strawberries. It, It rots pretty quick. And so you've got to eat it right away or it, or it, it's not worth eating. So he says, here's a picture. This thing isn't going to last very long. But what we don't get from the original language is that it said both those words, end and, and summer fruit, come out of a similar root. And so, again, it's a poetic form. We're just not used to it. We don't see it. It's a different language. But, you know, if you start digging, you're going, that's kind of beautiful. You know, that somebody put all that, wove all that together. And again, it's another declaration of the creativity of our God, even in the writing of these things. That said, I want to uh, go on at 8, verses 11 and 12. It says, Behold, days are coming. I'll send a famine on the land. And it's not a famine of bread or thirst, but of hearing the words of the Lord. He's telling them, in Israel, you're just, you're not really going to be receiving of the Lord anymore. There's a season coming where, remember Malachi? We, we had that same emphasis. You know, that it, there was a span of 400 years or more where the, the prophets just aren't prophesying. So the, the, Amos is making this declaration, this thing is going to get very dry spiritually before it's restored. He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. This is chapter 9, verses 8 and 10. And I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So what's he saying? He says, I'm tearing this thing apart, but I still am going to rebuild it at some point. That's the incredible thing. He says, I'm going to shake it like a sieve. There's not going to be much left. So again, this restatement, pieces, parts, it's all that's going to be left. But I'm going to rebuild it. And then you have this beautiful declaration in the last couple verses. You know, for us, when we're reading a book like this, we like to say, well, can't you make at least half the book sweet? Right? I don't mind reading a few blues verses as long as it's balanced out. You know? I don't, I don't mind you talking this negativity as long as we have some uplift. Because that's how we want to live our lives. Let's, let's lift it up. 
Let's talk nice, nice. You know, let's be, let's, let's not talk negative. You know, that's all. Didn't happen in Amos. You get a couple verses. Here's the final ones, though. This is our positive, so listen. <laughs> Plowman shall overtake the reaper, and treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild build the ruined cities and inhabit them. What's powerful in this is Amos is saying, judgment is coming to Israel, and this country is going to be wiped out. And then he's looking even further down the road and saying, but there is going to come a rebuilding time. So even before the disaster, he's predicting the restoration. And there's that hope in us, even when we, we, we can see the immediate at times, when you know we might be praying over a family member and we're going, Man, they've got trouble coming, and it's well-deserved. In fact, it's overdue. But God, restore. <laughs> you know? And, and you might see the immediate, but I encourage you, keep praying <laughs> toward the restoration. Because in a sense, this is the goodness of God, who, who in loving response says, yeah, I am not going to turn away from this. I'm not going to back off. I'm going to step in, and there is a punishment coming, but my heart's desire is to rebuild and restore. And that's his very work in our lives as well. There are times when we're going, everything I've got coming to me is well-deserved, and in fact, there's more that should happen. I recognize that now, or my sin has brought me to this point, and and there's a reason that these relationships have been violated and that, that I no longer have these friendships. There's a reason that my life feels like it's coming apart. I've lived this way. And yet there's this privilege of calling out and saying, but your heart is to restore and rebuild. And so I ask for that now. And it happens. Amazing. Lord, we pray, no matter what station of life we're at, as individuals, as a people, even as a country, we, help, we ask that you will help us to be aware of your hand and what the days are truly holding for us. We ask, Lord, where we have been sinful, that you would forgive our sin and draw us back to you. We ask where there has been this complacency about life that you would rekindle our hearts with a passion for you. We thank you that it's our privilege to be guided by your hand. Amen. Let's ask the Lord in this moment if there's something in the way that I've been living that has been refusing your hand then please reveal that to me one more time. You know, where we don't want to live in delusion, assuming that everything's good. So, Lord, if there's something 
in my attitudes or behavior, even my values, you know, whatever it would be that is profane that I've just embraced and assumed didn't matter, then reveal that to me in this moment, please. Then secondly, let's ask that if, if we've been trying to balance things that we see as profane and other as righteous and trying to say, I can do both, and we've intentionally refused God's voice, then let's ask him to, again, speak to our hearts in such a way that we will run with passion for him only. And then let's, in thankfulness, say, you are the God who restores. I dedicate myself to you again. Bring restoration and wholeness as a part of my life. And, and allow him to transform us and to believe that he truly forgives. You know, oftentimes when we've messed up, will he even talk to me? Yes. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Will he forgive? Absolutely. But it takes that heart turning and being willing for that. I want to pray for God's blessing on you now. And uh, what remains is open-ended. I just encourage you to seek the Lord while he may be found. May your blessing rest on these, your people. May they know the fullness of favor that you intend for their lives. May they discover what it is to walk passionately for you and the joy that is held in such a life. I ask that each one goes into the community, that you'll give them words of life to speak over others. I ask that you'll enable them to carry out the workings of your kingdom. Gift them with the supernatural. Be lifted up and exalted, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.